Welcome to Outdoors Radio with Dan Small, your source for the latest hunting and fishing information. Brought to you by LakeLink, your online fishing resource at lake-link.com. Outdoors Radio is also brought to you by Remy Battery, family owned and operated since 1931. Serving Milwaukee along with Escanaba and Houghton, Michigan. RemyBattery.com. By the Wisconsin Wildlife Federation, WIWF.org. And by the Castle Rock Petenwell Lakes Association, CastleRock-Petenwell.com. I'm Dan Small. Today, we'll talk to a heavyweight boxing champion who invented a vertical crossbow and a doctor who specializes in hearing protection for shooters, both of them from Mississippi. So stay right there. Well, folks, it's time now for Madison Outdoors, and you hear this feature each and every week on WTSO, the Big 1070, and on our podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, Lakelink, iHeartRadio, and other platforms as well. And joining us once again is McFarland guide Ron Bearfield. Well, Ron, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on again, Dan. You bet. Now, we'll get to the fishing report pretty quick because it is opening weekend, but I understand you have a turkey story to share. Yeah, it had the first season this year, and the birds were kind of hinned up for the first, almost the whole, uh, my whole season, and then Tuesday morning, the last day of the my season, I went down and was calling. I had three comms up on the hillside, and I got within probably... 75 to 100 yards of where they were roosted at and, and it was still still pretty dark when i got in there and they were i could you know i could you could hear them softly talking up there in a the tree a little bit it took two hours but uh, they hit the ground and uh, one of the big toms took off over the hill with two or three hens and they took them right away from me and these other two hit the ground and they stayed down oh 100 yards from me and just kept back and forth they wanted to come but they wanted me to come to them you know you know how that is and and uh, i had my decoys out i got uh, i had a couple of hen decoys and i had my uh, strutting tom decoy out and they didn't really pay much attention to them and and i finally hit a note i mean it took two hours for two hours i stayed within 100 yards of me and just kind of back and forth and back and forth and, and gobble at me and <laughs> Finally, I, I thought, well, i got to do something different here. They're not moving. And the day before that, they, the hens took them out the other end of the property, took them right away from me. And this time I, I kind of challenged with a lot of cackles and aggressive yelping. And and I finally hit a note on my diaphragm call that, that it seemed like they really liked. And all of a sudden, the old boss hen, you know, that was with them, one of them, I mean, they had 10 hens with them probably, she'd come in and come up to my decoy and stayed back a little bit and she was just raising all kinds of king because she didn't like it that they were there i guess and the toms followed her up that way and and eventually i finally got them to quit strutting over on the other hens and come over to investigate and and she walked off with the old hen and and they come up to investigate my decoys and of course when they did i shot the biggest one of the two and he went down and and flopping there, I had him down, and the other one jumped on him like a just wanting to beat him up something bad. He jumped, and I'm you know, I'm probably 20 yards from my decoys, and he had walked up into the decoys, the one I killed, and and uh, this other one's still jumping on him. I got up and walked to within 15 feet of that tom, and he's still jumping up and down on on the bird that I shot. I mean, I could have killed them both right there, but I walked right up, and all of a sudden he realized, oop, wait a minute, something's going on. He starts putting. He didn't run. He didn't. He just kind of started putting and walked right away from me. Walked up the hill. <laughs> the darnest thing I ever saw. But he wasn't afraid of me one bit. It was. A, it was the darnest thing you ever saw. I mean, I've had him jump on the bird when a couple times come in, and one time I had three come in, and and the other two jumped on the one that I shot, but yep. they didn't stay. You know what I'm saying? They, yeah. Yeah. They got. Interesting. Yeah, it's entertaining if there's two or more toms together because I've had the survivor jump on the, the dead one uh, like that and sometimes hang around. Sometimes, like you said, book it out of there as soon as they see that there's there's a hunter nearby. But I think they're totally confused and, you know, the other guy isn't leaving, so why should I, you know, for a while? <laughs> yeah, I think they get 
they get uh, so aggressive, they've got one down, and some reason they're going to just keep kicking the devil out of him, I guess. But it was an interesting hunt anyway, and it took me to the last day to get one because there's so many hens with them. But it turned out okay. Well, that's good. So, it's, it's good to know that there are hens around because uh, people are saying there's a shortage of turkeys or, or a decline. and You know, I kind of agree with that. Mm-hmm. There really is. I'm, I'm not seeing the birds I used to see. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I like to get a second tag if I can, just in case I don't get a bird the first season that I'm hunting. Uh, I can always go again later. But, you know, sometimes I think we're getting carried away with how many tags we're selling there and possibly how many birds we are killing. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't claim to be a biologist, but I'm not seeing the birds I used to see. Yeah, I'm not either, and I don't know the answer. Some people would agree with you that we're killing too many. Um, my friend Lauren Voss would not. He says, well, you know, the biologists know, and uh, they let me buy extra <laughs> permits, and so I'm going to keep shooting them because that's what I like to do in the spring. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I think that the biologists are selling, uh, you know, that's money in their pockets, the DNR's pockets, you know. The more tags they can sell, the better they like it, you know. Well, so, yeah, yeah. Who knows what everybody's motivation is. You but, know what I mean. A lot of times it seems like money might be a part of it. It just seems like because they had for the fifth and sixth season, they had 11,000 left for the sixth season and 8,000 something here a couple weeks ago for the for the fifth season. Yeah. So they, they still had quite, that was for zone one, but and that just seems like an awful lot of tags to be selling. There will be plenty left in both fifth and sixth season for Zone 1 right to the end, I think. Not as many hunters hunt at that time. There's the same number of permits for each of the time periods, but everybody wants to get in early. And now now that fishing season is open, uh, you know, people have other things to do. Well, speaking of fishing, what's your advice for this weekend here, it being the opening weekend? Well, I'll tell you the truth. The water temperature is still pretty darn cold. I guess if I was going to concentrate on anything, and don't be afraid to fish shallow either, like on, say, Wabisa or Monona, or Mendota for that matter, because the walleyes, in a low-light situation, of course, in the morning and in the evening, don't be afraid to throw a floating rappel up in four or five feet of water up on the rock. Those fish are actually uh, up in there on that shallow water. The water temperature is still so cold, you know, but it, a lot of those fish will spawn, I believe it's between 45 and 48, 49 degrees, and that's right where the water is at that I'm finding anyway is. 48, 49, water gets up to 50, and the next two days it'll be down to 43, you know, so it's been so up and down. Don't be afraid to fish shallow, because I think a lot of those fish are still trying to spawn. And the panfish, you can find uh, the warmer water. I've been getting a few on the Madison chain, some bluegills and crappies. Well, Mud Lake was a good spot. There's been a few other boats fishing in there as well, but you got to work for them. It's not not a gimme where you throw in the bar, goes right down, so you got to work a little bit for them. The mouth of Squabby there, uh, there's been some uh, bluegills in there hanging in there a lot. You know, the panfish bite should be pretty decent, I think, if we, especially with the water temperature, or, in the, or the air temperature, I should say, getting up 77 degrees this weekend. I think that'll warm things quick and really get them aggressive. Lake Wisconsin and the river, I did have some walleyes up there the other day, uh, did, and also uh, started fishing for some bass. The water's been kind of high. These fish are, are there again looking for the warmest water they can find. So if you're up in the river, try to fish the eddies or the sloughs. If you've got sloughs in the area, you know, where the fish can get up into because they're still hanging around those. We caught quite a few bass, really. Not much size, but quite a few of them on the river and, the, and Lake Wisconsin as well. All so right. that, I would probably concentrate on the bays, you know, the darker, darker, mucky bottom bays. That's going to be your warmest water. All right. Well, before we let you go, uh, I know you tend to avoid the public landings and the big lakes on opening weekend uh, because there's a lot of people there. Any advice for people who are going out for the first time just in terms of launching, handling their boat, and so on? Yeah, be uh, be very courteous, you know, and try to have your boat prepared, you know, your tackle in it, your life jackets, everything like that. Uh, if, if you're by yourself, naturally everybody's gonna gonna help you out if they can, you know, and they understand that it might take you just a little longer. But try to have your boat prepped and ready to go, and just push her off, get her tied up to the pier, get your car out of there and park it, get your boat and get out so the next guy can get in. That always helps out a lot at landings and 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 keeps tempers down a little bit. 
All right. Well, Ron, thanks for the report. I'm glad you got your turkey uh, taken care of in that first season, although it took a while. And uh, good luck as you fish this week and next. We'll talk to you probably in another two weeks. That sounds good. Thank you, Dan. You bet. Ron Beerfield with the Madison Report. I'm Dan Small. More Outdoors Radio right after this. Castle Rock and Petenwell are two of Wisconsin's largest inland lakes. With more than 60 square miles of water, they offer four seasons of outdoor fun. Halfway between the Twin Cities and Chicago, and just minutes from Wisconsin Rapids and the Dells, you'll enjoy family-friendly resorts and campgrounds, great fishing, bike trails, county, state, and national parks, and the Nesita National Wildlife Refuge. Learn more at castlerock-petenwell.com or on Facebook at Castle Rock Petenwell Lakes Association. If you're ever in a motor vehicle accident, call Hupie and Abraham, named Best Personal Injury Law Firm by the Wisconsin Law Journal year after year. The firm of Hupie and Abraham has collected more than a billion dollars for its clients. In fact, they collect millions of dollars every month for hundreds of satisfied clients. Call the firm Voted Best and Rated Best, Hupie and Abraham, 800-800-5678 or visit hupie.com. And all 11 offices of Hupie and Abraham are open for business. Well, joining me once again from his home in Wisconsin Rapids with an active dog in the background, <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Kell. <laughs> she doesn't make a lot of noise until the moment where you're hoping she just doesn't make a lot of noise. So There you go. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, Dan, that's uh, good to be with you again. Well, you had a short and sweet turkey season yourself. Uh, that was uh, the way to do it in my book. <laughs> it, it was. You know, Dan, it doesn't happen that often for me. Uh, in fact, last week we were just talking how many times uh, it hasn't worked so well for me. But, uh, uh, yeah, went out, uh, hit a couple pieces of public land first thing in the morning, did not hear any gobbles. I mean, I, I, I for even from a distance onto private land and all that, nothing. And um, drove around a little bit early morning, you know, really trying to see if birds work in fields at all, and even on private land, just to keep kind of a... You know, just like fishing, I try to gauge a pattern, you know, where are they in the fields? What type of fields are they in? What should I be looking for even on public land? And I was driving around, and I didn't see anything, didn't see anything, and I said, okay, I'm going to head towards the farm, but I'm going to drive past some MFL land and FCL land that we can, you know, hunt on. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I'm driving through a piece of land that I had not, or past a piece of land that I had not seen before, here was a tom strutting in the field right across the street. Oh, nice. And I thought, okay, well, there's a bird there. He's close enough that I think if I can get to the backside of this land, I can probably call him back to him, or at least try to talk to him. And uh, turn the corner, and there's ten more birds. Oh, my. As I turn the corner, it's uh, five jakes, and it looked to be another five hens. Maybe there was a sixth jake in there or something, but five hens. And so... Um, I pull over, and the hens all duck into the cover onto the public land, and the jakes stand there. Oh. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> They'll and, do uh, that. <laughs> and, and so I got out of the car, still standing there, went to go pop the uh, the back of the, the hatch, and uh, that's when they walked into the pri uh, public land. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, they're in the public land. Great, but I want that tom. So I walked one of the, the logging trails in there. Got myself set up, started talking to this Tom. Sure enough, I talked to the Tom for a little bit, and then a hen comes out, and she is barking at me. I mean, she is stomping her feet back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, barking at me. And, uh, you know, yelping, and, and you know, it was clearly she was not happy that I was trying to talk to, assuming her man. Mm -hmm. And um, she ended up wandering off behind me, and I thought, great, the Tom is going to follow right behind, because as she's doing that, he's gobbling his head off. Sure. And so uh, he ended up taking a different path, and I saw him, but there was no chance for a shot. Hmm. And uh, I did try to call him, but I think he kind of just got a little spooky. He turned, and he just walked away. Uh, ended up not making any more noise. So I thought, okay, a little defeated, but that was cool. You know, I still is headed to the farm. It's only like, I don't know, 7.30 in the morning. You know, it's not late, but it's a couple hours after daylight now. And uh, make my way down one of the other logging roads, and I'm watching all of the, the you know, the crosses in the logging roads, and I I'm, I see another tom and a hen. Hmm. So I back up, and I start calling, and I thought, all right, I'm just going to sit here. I got all day. They've got all day. 
Uh, if I can get that hen to make him come here, that's great. And I'm sitting there for a while, and they don't move. I even crawled, belly crawled to check if they're still down the trail. They were. He's strutting around, walking around her. She's really paying no mind to him. I get back up against the tree, trying to contemplate what I'm going to do, and then I see the five jakes I saw at the road, and they are all <laughs> making a beeline for me. Yeah. And so I slowly get the gun up, and I literally just had to wait for one to walk in front of the bead, Dan. <laughs> First well, one walked in front of the bead, and down it went. <laughs> good for you. And I think you made the right choice. We can all hope for a Tom and work a Tom, which you did, um, but then... You know, a bird in hand, as they say. So, Yeah, I, I've gone plenty of seasons, Dan, where I have worked birds for days and mm. just never been successful or hadn't been successful at that time. To have uh, a legal bird walk in front of me like that, I'll take it every single time. Yep, yep. Especially yeah. now with uh, fewer turkeys that most people are agreeing is the case here in Wisconsin. Well, um, then you took Robert on his first hunt. I did. You know, it's a, it was kind of a short and sweet day. It was before school earlier this week, and uh, we had went to the farm where I had seen some action on the cameras, kind of figured we could get ourselves set up because we were going to need a blind, and we were using the crossbow, so I have a, I have a, 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 a brace for that as well. And uh, got ourselves set up in a great position, heard a bird uh, gobbling that night before, got ourselves in a blind that next morning, he gobbled and gobbled. He gobbled for almost an hour on roost. It was mm. about 40 minutes. He mm. never left the roost. And then when he did, he flew down. He flew about 150 yards away from us and then proceeded to walk onto the lane we were sitting on, but 200 yards down and sat there and put on a show with nobody around. And then eventually he walked away. Um, not sure if we did something wrong or if because his vantage point was so high in the roost compared to where we were, where we were, he didn't see a hen walking around, so he could have been a little wary. I don't know exactly what the case is. He's still definitely a killable bird. He's by himself, but uh, so far, Dan, we're birdless, but Robert was super excited. He was shaking. I mean, we thought for sure this bird was coming right to us, so it was it was a lot of fun to see, and I cannot wait to get him on another one. Well, good luck with that, and I'm sure we'll hear the report, whether it's positive or more fun but no bird, next week. Well, gosh, I'm heading up to the Governor's Fishing Opener on Shell Lake this weekend. My son John's coming down from Bayfield. He's been kayaking the Brule River and Lake Superior, not wasting any time getting out there and uh, doing the whitewater kayaking on the Brule in that stretch north of Highway 2 and uh, paddling out to Basswood Island. I don't know where else they went, but they've had a good time, and uh, I'll be fishing with him this weekend. Well, folks, you can make a difference for the future of hunting, fishing, and healthy habitat by joining the Wisconsin Wildlife Federation. WIWF.org is their website. Add your support to one of the most active and growing grassroots networks right here in Wisconsin. The Federation welcomes individuals, businesses, clubs, and alliances who want to do what's right for fish, wildlife, and people who rely on access to healthy natural resources. Join today, WIWF.org. Well, May is Better Hearing and Speech Month, so Dr. Grace Sturdivant is going to share some advice for protecting our hearing, something all shooters should pay attention to. Former U.S. amateur boxing champion Jerry Goff talks about the advantages of his vertical mini crossbow, and we'll kick things off with Clark County landowner and Wisconsin wildlife treasurer David Verhage, who reports on his experience with the impact of severe weather events. All that and more straight ahead on Outdoors Radio. Enjoy the ultimate shooting experience at the Range of Richfield, your one-stop shop for all shooters. Just north of the Richfield Cabela's store on Helson Drive, the Range of Richfield offers 12 state-of-the-art 25-yard indoor shooting lanes for all pistol and common rifle loads. Classes in home defense, basic handgun and concealed carry, a retail shop, trophy mount display, and more in a welcoming, family-friendly setting. Open daily except Monday to the public and members. Your ultimate shooting experience, therangewi.com. Castle Rock and Petenwell are two of Wisconsin's largest inland lakes. With more than 60 square miles of water, they offer four seasons of outdoor fun. Halfway between the Twin Cities and Chicago, and just minutes from Wisconsin Rapids and the Dells, you'll enjoy family-friendly resorts and campgrounds, great fishing, bike trails, county, state, and national parks, and the Nacita National Wildlife Refuge. 
Learn more at castlerock-petenwell.com or on Facebook at Castle Rock Petenwell Lakes Association. For the nonprofit Ruffed Grouse Society, the well-being of the Ruffed Grouse and American Woodcock is a special priority. But the Society's conservation work benefits more than just these two game birds. The organization's programs help a long list of other young forest wildlife, including songbirds that must have thick, brushy habitat to survive. For more information about forest wildlife habitat management, contact the Ruffed Grouse Society toll-free at 888-JOIN-RGS. Get outside and let us be your guide. Lawrence County, Wisconsin. Are you looking for a safe Northwoods destination for outdoor recreation? Florence County has over 200,000 acres of uncrowded public land with 160 miles of wooded ATV trails, many lakes and rivers to fish or paddle, seven wild river waterfalls to hike to, horse trails with campgrounds, and friendly bars and restaurants. Go to the ExploreFlorenceCounty.com lodging, dining, and recreation tabs to plan your trip. Welcome back to your source for the latest hunting and fishing information. Outdoors Radio with Dan Small. Thanks for joining us on Outdoors Radio. I'm Dan Small. The Wisconsin Wildlife Federation is a group of grassroots conservation organizations and individuals dedicated to the future of fish, wildlife, clean water, and healthy habitat. Their website is wiwf.org. And over the next few weeks, uh, we've been doing this now for a couple months, but we're going to continue talking with people from all over Wisconsin about their experience with recent severe weather events. And joining us now to continue this series is David Verhage. He's a landowner with property near Spencer in Clark County. David, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Now, I understand you're trying to get a turkey there on your property this week, and it's been a struggle, huh? <laughs> well, we've seen them, but we haven't been able to get them in close enough for a shot. It's good that we're at least seeing them. It uh, makes you want to continue hunting. Yeah, I think every turkey hunter can relate to that, not getting them close enough for a shot, because that's really what it's all about. Now, I understand you've had some experience with severe weather events on that property there. Yes. I bought this land back in 1992, and the north side of my property is lower and wetter than probably the south side. I've got logging roads up there that maneuver through the 50 or 60 acres that are up on that end, and it always dried out in the fall, so I could put the brush hog in the back of the tractor and get on my logging roads to knocked down the new popple trees that were growing in or the tall grass and the brush that intruded in on the logging roads. Well, there, there are several spots that are fairly low and are usually too wet to get through. But in the fall, when things dried out traditionally, for years and years I was able to get my tractor up there and brush hog the logging roads. Well, certainly recently, I'd say in the last five or six years, I haven't been able to do that because it continually is just too wet. It never dries out in the fall. It seems that we're just about getting dry enough to get up there and we get another rainstorm. That's probably the biggest thing that I've noticed in what used to be and what is now. A lot of us have seen similar uh, heavy rainfall events we've had. I've talked about this uh, on, on our show a number of times. We've had four severe floods in the last six years, and bracing for another one. We hope it never happens, but uh, any thoughts on why this is happening? The weather seems to be changing, certainly, whether that's man-made or it's natural. It does seem to be changing where we're getting more precipitation or at least certainly more events of it where it just things just don't dry out. Have your neighbors up there had similar experiences? Yeah, they too have roads that go in and there's wetter spots than others, and they were able to get in places where now it's difficult because water's standing. What are you doing about it, if anything? Can you drain those wet spots, or you just live with them? Well, I've considered having somebody fill them in in the wintertime, and I've also considered a friend of mine has a walk-behind brush cutter 
where I would guess I could get through those wet spots and still do it, you know, with some sort of brush cutter if I, if the intrusion of the small popple trees and brush get too bad up there. We've been kind of taking care of it with a chainsaw up till now, but we'll probably have to get the walk-behind brush cutter up there to knock things down. Can you still hunt it and use it for the purpose you bought it for? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's harder to get back there, though. We end up dragging a deer out in the fall or early winter when we used to be able to get a four-wheeler up there or whatever, but again, it's hard to get through those wet spots. We do have a hand cart now that I got and my son got a buck up there last year during gun season, and we used the cart to haul it out. Have you noticed any impact on wildlife populations or behavior there? No, I don't think so. We we probably have more deer than ever. It doesn't seem to have hurt the herd any, for sure. And turkeys? Just the last couple of years, we are seeing turkeys again. There was quite a while there that we never saw or heard a bird around here for a while, but it seems at least in the last two years they're they're coming back. So the wet spots don't seem to have hurt wildlife populations. They've just hampered your ability to get in there and manage it the way you used to. Yes. Well, before we started recording, you shared some thoughts about what we can do in a greater sense, in a global sense, about these severe weather changes or global warming or climate change. Do you care to share those thoughts? Here in the United States, it seems we've certainly reduced our carbon footprint, I think, but we've done it in some cases or in a lot of cases by forcing industry offshore, like our steel industry, and then import the products back where I'm afraid they're made a lot dirtier than we would have made them here. And really what we're doing is making globally making things worse, not better. We have to, I think, be careful about what we're doing. I mean, if we increase, for instance, the cost of electricity, that forces a lot of industry, more industry offshore because, as I understand, China has built several hundred coal fire plants in China over the last several years. And that has to be an anticipation of taking over a lot of the world's industry. And they're certainly not going to be as concerned about their carbon footprint as we probably are. They don't seem to be for sure. Yeah. So solving a problem here might create more problems if we don't look at it in a global sense. Yes. I mean, again, we're making things worse if they're making the products and we're importing them and they made them dirtier and we would have made them here in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, we're not going to solve that problem today for sure, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I know a lot of people are thinking about it. So I want to let you get back to your turkey hunt and I appreciate you spending a few minutes talking about the issues you've seen on your property. Oh, you're welcome. David Verhage uh, joined us to talk about the impact of severe weather events on his property there in Clark County. Perhaps you've had similar experiences, and if so, you can get in touch with us. Send me an email at dsoradio at gmail.com. This was brought to you by the Wisconsin Wildlife Federation. Their website is wiwf.org. I'm Dan Small. More Outdoors Radio right after this. Listen to more Outdoors Radio online at dansmalloutdoors.com. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio with Dan Small. Thanks for joining us on Outdoors Radio. I'm Dan Small. As a lifelong hunter and shooter, I've suffered a loss of hearing, and it really dates back to my high school days when I was on the high school rifle team. We shot 22 caliber rifles in a concrete basement with no hearing protection. Nobody knew about it or talked much about it back then. This was uh, back in the early 1960s. Today, most shooting ranges, gun clubs, and, and other places where people shoot 
require shooters to wear both eye and ear protection. All the trap, skeet, and sporting clay shooters I know wear hearing protection, and some hunters do as well. And joining us now to talk about the importance of protecting our hearing and how to go about it and what to do if we have hearing loss is Dr. Grace Sturdivant. She joins us from Jackson, Mississippi. She has a doctorate in audiology from Vanderbilt University, uh, the medical school there, and she's the founder and owner of Odo Pro Technologies. It's a business that focuses on hearing conservation, and her website and links to other social media platforms is Oto Pro, and that's O-T-O Pro, otoprotechnologies.com. Well, Dr. Sturdivant, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, you grew up in a family of shooters and hunters, and I understand you're a shooter yourself, right? Well, I do shoot a little bit. These days, I spend a lot of time around shooting, but I am working on people's ears. Right. <laughs> I, I go to uh, some amazing venues for shooting and for hunting, uh, but these days, I'm not doing as much shooting as I am checking on people's ears. Okay, and as an audiologist, now you worked in a clinical setting for a number of years, but then I think it was 2016 you decided to start your own company to help people with hearing issues. Why did you do that? Well, you know, my career has been uh, in constant evolution, and I think looking backwards, all the dots connect. Uh, And so I started out in the academic medical setting at the University of Mississippi Medical Center where I was in an ear, nose, and throat department diagnosing and treating hearing loss and developed a niche for working with patients who had both some form of dementia or cognitive decline and hearing loss. And I was witnessing firsthand some of the negative synergy that I was beginning to read about in research that was coming out of Colorado, Johns Hopkins at the time. So I began publishing a few articles and speaking on that topic regionally to other hearing care providers to try to give them some information that they could use in clinic with their patients. And that landed me on a research study out of Johns Hopkins. We were a data collection site for a study looking at exactly that. And all the while, I'm studying the neurological and cognitive effects of auditory deprivation or hearing loss. Basically, when you're when you have hearing loss and you're not sending those signals to the brain to be processed, it's a lack of brain stimulation because mm-hmm. that's actually where we hear. So, as I was studying all of that, I became more compelled than ever to prevent those issues and to keep those neurological processes intact before the damage is done, or at a minimum to stabilize a hearing loss where it is to potentially slow those effects or delay those effects later on. So. I started the business so that I could focus on researching all of the available hearing protection products out there so that I could be the expert in that area and help guide people toward the best possible solutions for what they needed hearing protection. In doing that, there was one more problem that presented itself, and that was that people did not want to take time out of their lives to sit in a medical clinic and go through the medical model to to go through that process. So I had to pivot a little bit, and I got outside the clinic and started going over to my friends' and family's homes after work, sitting at their kitchen table and laying out all the options, molding their ears, which only takes about five minutes, but it has to be done to achieve a good custom fit, and then delivering products straight to their door in a couple of weeks. And what began as that passion project to help my friends and family prevent these issues I was dealing with in research and clinic, word started spreading like wildfire. And now Odopro, um, I'm as surprised as anyone that we now have a, a national reach and 150 clinic locations across the U.S. that can mold ears for us. And the rest is really history. I think people are eager to prevent the hearing damage that has so often occurred, just like what you described from your background. It was just we needed an easy and efficient model for getting it done. So you've become an itinerant audiologist, I guess. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I have become the, the earplug girl. You know, I'll meet people and they're like, oh, I've seen your Instagram. You're that earplug girl. I'm like, yes, I am. I'm mm-hmm. a doctor of audiology that works with earplugs. Mm-hmm. And I've 
I've become the resident expert where I can give you pros and cons of every make and model out there. If you're trying to decide between one brand or another, basically like a, a concierge for your hearing. I love the relational aspect of audiology. And in the same way that I developed ongoing relationships with my hearing aid patients in the traditional setting, I now have ongoing relationships with people who are protecting their hearing. And if they have questions about their hearing or they develop a buzzing or a ringing or you have a question, they call me about that too. It's becoming your personal hearing concierge Mm -hmm. is what OdoPro essentially does for people. Mm -hmm. Just how common is hearing loss among shooters in particular, but uh, people who work with chainsaws or heavy equipment, um, you know, noisy things? You know, with noisy things, it's hard. It's hard to have a hard and fast statistic there. You'll you'll see some different numbers in research. One thing I like to to counsel people on is that noise induced hearing loss is a combination of how loud something is and how long you're exposed to it. So, for 150, 160 decibel gunshot, you could sustain immediate damage. Whereas if you're running a lawnmower at about 95 decibels you're going to be able to withstand just a little bit longer before that damage starts to set in. I also coach people about the warning signs of hearing loss. I equate it to a sunburn, okay? When I was younger and I used to lay out in the sun and try to get that golden bronze tan and that you would burn and then and then it would look bad for a day or two, but then your skin goes back to normal and you think it's fine. Well, now that I'm approaching 40, I'm seeing all the effects of that early sun damage that are just starting to exhibit themselves now. So with hearing loss, you know, you go to those concerts or you shoot guns or use your loud equipment in your younger years and maybe your ears ring for a while, maybe just overnight. They might even ring for a few days and then your hearing seems to go back to normal. Well, all that catches up with you later. What that's doing is it's it's temporarily damaging the little hair cell fibers that transmit the sound to your brain. And those little hair cell fibers will recover so many times until they're weakened to the point that they can't recover anymore. And that's when the permanent damage sets in. So I've no doubt suffered permanent damage based on... I'm sure. Yeah, okay. Talk about tinnitus a little bit, the ringing that I also hear. Well, with the ringing in the ears, or tinnitus, as we say in the medical world, a lot of people say tinnitus. With tinnitus, we see that a lot in shooters because there's a very discrete frequency or pitch that has sustained damage. So oftentimes a lifelong shooter will have a hearing test or an audiogram that has very good hearing thresholds across the the lower pitches or the bass tones. And then there is a very classic noise notch where usually at about 6,000 hertz at that pitch, the hair cells have been damaged because of the, the pinpoint pitch of that gunshot and those hair cells are damaged. And then sometimes there's even a recovery to normal at the very highest pitches or mm-hmm. the most treble tones. And when that happens, your cochlea or your hearing nerve that has those hair cell fibers, if you were to unroll it, it's organized like a piano keyboard from treble to bass. Those treble tones get hit first and hardest. That's why we typically see high-pitch hearing loss develop sooner than the low-pitch hearing loss. When you've damaged those pitches, those hair cells associated with that particular pitch, that pitch is not being transmitted to the brain for processing. The auditory cortex in each temporal lobe is also coded treble to bass for pitch. And so when you have one discrete area that's not being stimulated and the rest of the surface area is, the brain starts to search for a signal that's not coming. I compare it to a phantom limb syndrome where when someone may have lost say, an arm and they feel pain in, a, in an area that's not there, it's because the brain is searching for a sensory signal that's not coming. We also see the limbic system involved with this. So I, I tell people if you suffer from ringing, you may notice that it reaches a fever pitch. You know, it gets very intense in times of stress, lack of sleep, too much caffeine, too much salt can all play into the severity of ringing. Mm-hmm. There's, no cure, there's no cure for it. Uh, but I will say with my hearing aid patients, historically, I would put them in the sound booth and we could even pitch match and loudness match exactly the ringing that their brain is generating and that they're hearing. And then we could program in a very low level masking noise into an ear level device, whether it's a hearing aid or just a tinnitus masker. And that could help soothe that tinnitus and put it into the background instead of having it be such a, a focus 
There's a lot more we could cover here, but what can we do about hearing loss? Obviously, some kind of hearing aid. I refer people to to their local audiology practices that are in our network routinely for hearing aid care, which I believe should be developed locally because of the individualized programming that has to happen over the course of the first few months that you're wearing hearing aids. That's why with Odo Pro, I don't deal with hearing aids, but I'm focused on hearing protection. I'm a big proponent of customized fit when it comes to protection so that we know we're getting an airtight seal of your ear canals. And we can filter those products. We can give amplification in combination with protection. On our website, we're constantly updating with new products and what we consider to be the best in class. You can order right there, and then if it's a custom fit product, we email you right after you purchase with information on where to go to get your ears molded and all the specifics to get that done so that you can drop those ear mold impressions in the mail and then receive the products you've ordered in about two to three weeks following. One more piece of advice just for your listeners as I'm barreling through this information as quickly as I can is that... The best protection is going to be when you wear something custom fit in your ears and a muff over the top. And that's what I recommend for people who want to add, say, another 20 decibels of noise reduction on top of that custom fit product. So indoor ranges. Certainly, that's what I wish you had been wearing in that basement back in the 60s. Yeah. Would would be an in-the-ear with a muff over the top. But there's a contact tab on my website where people submit questions. And we're always happy to consult with people. We can build out very customized products depending on what it is that you need and what features you need for your specific hearing ability and purpose for use. I will definitely check that out because, as as, um, you know and my listeners know, uh, my listening is not what it was, or my hearing is not what it was. Uh, my listening is still pretty good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure some of our listeners will check it out, too, because we have a lot of folks who shoot and hunt, and our turkey season is on right now. And Some people wish they could hear those turkeys better, too, yeah. <laughs> and we can amplify to give you a little bit of an edge yeah. in addition to protection. Well, Dr. Sturdivant, thank you so much. We may... Uh, check in with you again maybe when our fall hunting seasons are approaching uh, get some advice for hunters who and shooters who might be interested in protecting and saving what hearing they have so thank you so much thank you i would enjoy that dr grace sturdivant she is an audiologist from jackson mississippi her website is otoprotechnologies.com and otopro is o-t-o-p-r-o otoprotechnologies.com I'm Dan Small. More Outdoors Radio right after this. Here's a message from our friends at Remy Battery in Milwaukee, Escanaba, and Houghton. We at Remy Battery Company want to thank all of our customers and friends we have made over the past 90-plus years and your continued support of our local, family-owned company. Stop in and see the expertise of over nine decades of battery knowledge and customer service. Let us take care of the batteries for all of your needs, from power tools to sump pumps and ATVs to hunting decoys, even down to the smallest hearing aids. Big and small, we have them all. Stop in for a free battery and electrical check before you hit the road, trails, or waters. Don't forget to ask your sales representatives about volume pricing. Call Remy at 414-384-0340 or visit online at remybattery.com for all your battery and battery accessory needs. Castle Rock and Petenwell are two of Wisconsin's largest inland lakes. With more than 60 square miles of water, they offer four seasons of outdoor fun. Halfway between the Twin Cities and Chicago, and just minutes from Wisconsin Rapids and the Dells, you'll enjoy family-friendly resorts and campgrounds, great fishing, bike trails, county, state, and national parks, and the Nesita National Wildlife Refuge. Learn more at castlerock-petenwell.com or on Facebook at Castle Rock Petenwell Lakes Association. For the nonprofit Ruffed Grouse Society, the well-being of the Ruffed Grouse and American Woodcock is a special priority. But the Society's conservation work benefits more than just these two game birds. The organization's programs help a long list of other young forest wildlife, including songbirds that must have thick, brushy habitat to survive. For more information about forest wildlife habitat management, contact the Ruffed Grouse Society toll-free at 888-JOIN-RGS. 
Welcome back to your source for the latest hunting and fishing information. Outdoors Radio with Dan Small. Thanks for joining us on Outdoors Radio. I'm Dan Small. Well, it's no secret that crossbows are gaining in popularity among hunters across the country. And here in Wisconsin, we've seen the crossbow harvest surpass the archery harvest now several years in a row, and it doesn't seem to be letting up at all. And crossbows keep evolving as well. And joining us now from Socher, Mississippi, is Jerry Goff. You may recognize his name because he's a former professional boxer, he fought Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield, among others. He's a five-time national amateur heavyweight boxing champion, and he was a member of the USA boxing team. But, of more interest to us, he's also the inventor of a crossbow that really turns the standard horizontal crossbow play 90 degrees and makes it vertical. It's called the Hickory Creek Mini Inline Crossbow. And you may also remember him from his TV show, Knockout Hunting Adventures. That was on Sportsman Channel, Men's Channel, and Pursuit eventually. And his website is verticalcrossbow.com. And he has a YouTube channel where you can watch some of those shows, KO Hunting. Well, Jerry, thanks for joining us. Well, Dan, I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Well, now, how did you come up with the concept of a vertical crossbow? Well, back in the mid-90s, I guess it was 95, uh, I came out with a product called the draw lock and it actually what it did was and i know a lot of people know know of it because it was real popular uh back several years back but uh, it actually you bolted this device up to your compound bow and it allowed you to draw the bow back and you could draw it with your with your foot and lock it in full draw and it was great for well for like me all the years of boxing I had uh, shoulder issues and and neck problems and different things and I ended up having to have three shoulder surgeries but uh i was getting ready to go on a on a, an elk hunt uh, in colorado and it got really really bad so i actually improvised a device and made a device that actually worked on the psc carol intruder that i had at the time which is like a probably a 38 inch bow uh axle to axle so it was a longer bow you know mm-hmm. or maybe maybe a little longer than that but anyway so I needed something to help me out. So that's what I did. I came up with this draw lock. And it worked so well until a lot of my buddies wanted it. So I started building them like that. And I uh, got a patent on it and, uh, and went from there. And then, then a little later on, started building compound bows with draw locks on them. You know, it's just gone from there this, this many years. Okay. And... Of course, it's vertical, so it has advantages uh, over a, a crossbow. I've <clears throat> I've hunted with a crossbow, and it's a little bit like walking through the woods with an airplane, a very small airplane in your hands, you know. <clears throat> That's exactly the terminology I use. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it is. And you don't really, I mean, even the most narrow uh, bows that they've got, crossbows that they've got today, you still, they still got the negative, that negative, same negative characteristics. That the older uh, bows from back in the 70s and 80s, across those in the 70s and 80s had, you know, they're they're just uh, cumbersome and a bit on the awkward side, you know. Yep. And, and these, you know, these little bows being in the vertical orientation, I mean, you can walk with them, you can swing them as, you, as you're walking, just a natural gait, just like you'd be swinging your arms, and nothing nothing banged into your leg, and, and you don't have to fight it going through the bushes. Uh, it's quite amazing, and you know, and you think about in hunting situations, like if you're in a in a like a shooting house or maybe a climbing stand. You know, if you have a deer come up behind you in a climbing stand, swinging left to right, you have to watch those trees to make sure that you don't uh, when you squeeze the trigger, your cams aren't hitting the trees. Yeah. Well, this this has no no effect on them. I mean, you can literally you can prop against the tree. And literally shoot off the tree as a brace. For the guys that like to hunt the rut and hunt these, you know, scrape areas, you can literally get into a tree and be on the back side of the tree and face the scrape looking to the tree, you know. And so now, now you've got that as a disguise, you know, as a way sure, to, sure. To, to, to kind of cover your view, which is, I mean, it's really cool. 
Mm. Really Neat. Well, now you've already uh, talked about some of the advantages. It's also light in weight, I understand, compared oh. to a lot of crossbows. You know, it really is. I mean, m- most crossbows, you know, going to weigh in, in the seven pound range, and then you put the scope and yeah. other things, and then you've got up to ten pounds. This, with the scope, with the arrows, the quiver, and everything, weighs right at six pounds. Wow. And the thing is, and, and, and the weight itself is not that impressive. It's the way the weight is distributed, you know, in the bow, throughout the bow. It, it's amazingly light. I mean, I've got amputees that shoot these bows, and they're able, they're so light, they're able to shoot them one-handed, mm-hmm. which is really, really neat. And just being able to, to be able to do that for these guys that they, they can't, uh, they can't hold a bow up with both hands. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned arrows, and I understand it shoots regular arrows. You don't need to buy yeah. crossbow bolts for it. Right, and you know, most archery shops they have the three hundred spined arrows. That's the heavier spine. You know, three fifty is the normal uh, spine arrow. This is a step above that. And when the arrows are cut down to twenty three inches, that that makes them plenty strong to to support that. You know, max of 150 pound mm-hmm. draw weight. Mm-hmm. Now, the great thing about these bows here is that you're able to reduce the poundage from from 90 to 150. So, uh, if there's someone that that uh, they can't draw or, or have, you know, you don't have any any need to shoot to 150 pounds, you can shoot to 125 or 130 uh-huh. or, or less. It just all depends on what you want, you know, what your needs are, you know. Yep. Yep. And just what you can handle. And, and, you know, there's a lot of people that are buying these bows that are, are buying them just for plinker bows, you know, where you get out in the backyard and they shoot just target shooting because these bows are fun. These bows, you draw them by hand. You don't need a rope cocking device to get the string straight because, you know, when you shoot a crossbow, the string has got to go back consistently every time straight. Because yep. if you pull one... You know, if you pull it a little bit too far to the left, a little bit too hard to the right, you know, and then you, you knock your arrow, then, then it's going to shoot different every time. Mm. you got to be consistent on that. On, on our string, we have a D-loop, just like a compound bow. So when you draw that string up, you're going to hook it on that D-loop, and it's going to be at the same place every single time, which has consistency. So that means your accuracy is not going to go left or right or up and down it's going to be it's going to be the same every time so so these guys are able to draw them by hand uh you know be able to draw them up you know put their foot in the stirrup and draw them up like that and they get the same consistency every time and that just makes it more fun to shoot because you don't have to go through the the effort of cocking the bow with a crank or with a rope cocking device that's all time consuming and aggravating it's a huge plus and you're also you can actually let the bow down without shooting it. Just grab the strings on both sides, just lift it off the latch and let it down. So there is no, you don't have to mess with anything that way either. I mean, it's it's pretty, it's pretty outstanding. It really is. Well, that's pretty cool. Now, arrow speed is somewhat less than a lot of more modern crossbows. That seems to be one of the things... The big names, and we won't name any of them, but they go every year. They try to up the speed, but you've stuck with this draw weight of 150 pounds, and you get, what, about 330 feet per second, something like that? Yeah, we get 330 with us. It's, it's, really, it's really good speed. We're not the fastest, and we don't want to be the fastest. Could I be the fastest? Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I know how to make these bows fast. But what goes along with making a bow fast is you have issues, you have problems, you've got strings that won't hold up, you've got limbs that are breaking, you've got so many things that are happening. I want to be in this shop building bows, not repairing bows. It's got all the speed and all the power that a whitetail hunter, an elk hunter, a moose hunter, or any, any hunter could possibly need. You told me the other day that you... You might get one or two back in a year. You don't have a problem with bows coming back for repair or replacement of parts. No, no, I really don't. And that's why. Because this bow here has no rail, if you can just envision a compound bow with a fixed wrist release, Mm -hmm. that's basically what you've got. So you don't have a rail uh, for the string or cables or whatever to, to, to wear, to rub constantly. 
And that, that do, does two things, or three things, actually. It makes the bow faster, pound for pound, power stroke, power stroke for power stroke. And it also makes it quieter because if you, you know, if you were just to take an arrow and slide an arrow across the table, you would hear noise. Oh, yeah. So you just imagine doing that at an extreme rate, extreme speed. You know, there's a lot of noise and a lot of energy there that's on that rail. And that creates a lot of that noise that you hear. There was a guy, the field archer on YouTube, but he actually did a, a comparison test. And ours, by far, was the quietest crossbow on the market. Fantastic. Well, Jerry, we got to let you go, but before we do, where can people get it? Is your website the best way direct from you? Yeah, yeah. We, we basically, because we don't have the issues, the repairs and all this, we pretty much just do a consumer direct sales. And uh, you can go to verticalcrossbow.com, and that'll bring you right into our site. You can order right there. All right. Well, Jerry, thanks so much for sharing the um, information about your amazing design of a vertical crossbow. I want to get my hands on one and try it, and I think a lot of listeners are going to be intrigued at least to check it out, if not to buy one. So thank you so much. Look, you've got to put these things in your hand to, to appreciate them. And once you do, you go, I understand why these guys make them like they do. All right. Well, Jerry, thank you so much, and we'll have you on again sometime. All right. Sounds great, Dan. Thank you. You take care. You too. Jerry Goff, designer and inventor of the Hickory Creek Mini Inline Crossbow. Again, his website is verticalcrossbow.com. I'm Dan Small. You are listening to Outdoors Radio. Get outside and let us be your guide. Lawrence County, Wisconsin. Are you looking for a safe Northwoods destination for outdoor recreation? Florence County has over 200,000 acres of uncrowded public land with 160 miles of wooded ATV trails, many lakes and rivers to fish or paddle, seven wild river waterfalls to hike to, horse trails with campgrounds, and friendly bars and restaurants. Go to the exploreflorencecounty.com lodging, dining, and recreation tabs to plan your trip. Enjoy the ultimate shooting experience at the Range of Richfield, your one-stop shop for all shooters. Just north of the Richfield Cabela's store on Helson Drive, the Range of Richfield offers 12 state-of-the-art 25-yard indoor shooting lanes for all pistol and common rifle loads. Classes in home defense, basic handgun and concealed carry, a retail shop, trophy mount display, and more in a welcoming, family-friendly setting. Open daily except Monday to the public and members. Your ultimate shooting experience, therangewi.com. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio with Dan Small. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio. I'm Jeff Kelm. We're brought to you by Cedar Lake Sales on Highway 33 West in West Bend on the web at cedarlakesales.com. they got great deals on new and used boats, so check out their website and Facebook page for details. We're also brought to you by Remy Battery, family-owned and operated since 1931, serving Milwaukee, Escanaba, and Houghton. Let's start something. RemyBattery.com by the Wisconsin Wildlife Federation, grassroots hunting and angling conservationists dedicated to the future of fish, wildlife, and clean water and healthy habitat, WIWF.org, and by the Castle rock Petenwell Lakes Association, 60 square miles of fun on the water, CastleRock-Petenwell.com. If you missed anything on today's radio show and you want to hear it again, go ahead or, or you missed. You don't know what you missed, right, Dan? You don't know what you missed, so go ahead and download it anyway. <laughs> but uh, go to Lake-Link.com. they got their outdoor radio page, and uh, you can uh, download this show and past shows and take us with you and listen to us all week long, if you care to. You can follow Dan on social media at Dan Small Outdoors and follow me at Hardwater Jeff. The Midwest Outdoor Heritage Education Expo, called MOHI for short, is back this year. It's a free event open to 4th through 7th graders, and it runs May 18th and 19th. Um, kids go one of those two days. It's at McKenzie Environmental Education Center. They still have room for kids if uh, your youngster or your youngster's class has an interest in attending this. Uh, go to OutdoorHeritageEducationCenter.com. Other news, well, this is tick season. That's uh, no surprise to us. The Department of Health Services, which is DATCAP, they have a short video with advice, and most of it's pretty good. They talk about permethrin, spraying on your clothes. That's what I do. 
And here's uh, one that just came across this week. Our friends at Ballard's Black Island Resort are offering a two-for-one summer deal. This is a great opportunity for an incredible fishing experience on Lake of the Woods. I've been up there myself twice. We caught tons of walleyes, smallmouths, northerns, perch, crappies, and even a few muskies. Could be the trip of a lifetime for a couple or a father-son, father-daughter team. Two-for-one. that might not come again. So for details... Visit BlackIsland.com. BlackIsland.com. Tell me you heard it here on Outdoors Radio. And Warren Nelson and his all-star cast uh, with Jack Gunderson, Tom Mitchell, and more are performing next weekend at the Harborview Event Center in Washburn. This is the show Souvenir Views, the first of the musicals that Warren did featuring Washburn's first hundred years. It's a great show, and it's free. So... Check out uh, that at the Harborview Event Center in Washburn. I'm Dan Small here with Jeff Kelm. Get outside this weekend. Be sure you join us again next week for Outdoors Radio.